place it comfortably. So good morning everyone. Uh, this is uh, the last Dharma talk I, I do for the, the session. Um, tomorrow is a half day. Uh, when I, after I gave the talk yesterday on um, not taking ourselves so seriously, after I went outside and I was putting my shoes on, on the veranda, um, a memory came back to me of a saying, which I think is by uh, G.K. Chesterton, um, who is a, was an English writer, essayist, and he said the, the reason why angels can fly is because they take themselves so lightly. And today's talk is about um, generosity. And we could also say the reason that angels can fly is they're not holding on to any possessions. And usually on this last um, talk of um, session, I have a, a theme about how we can bring this practice into everyday life. And I think looking at the um, one of the precepts of um, not being possessive but being generous is a good teaching in terms of how we can bring this practice back into everyday lives when we go back home and to work. Um, James Austin, who is the author of um, the book Zen and the Brain, uh, he was a, a long-time Zen student of my same te- my first teacher I had, Kabori Roshi, in Kyoto in Japan and also a um, emeritus professor of neuroscience. And um, in his book, he combined Zen and neuroscience, but he refers, it's interesting use of words, he, he refers to the ego identity as the I-me-mind syndrome. So the I referring to a sense of superiority importance me referring to defensiveness and mine referring to possessiveness and those three things together make up the ego identity. So the the restriction on, on generosity is possessiveness, not just possessive of, of um, material things but a whole lot of things, ideas, love, etc. And um, we could liken, when, when we're possessive, um, we're tight, like mentally and physically. It's a, it's a, it's a tightness, which is there, and you could liken possessive, possessiveness as being like a, a tight fist, and it's holding onto something, you know, and it doesn't want to let go. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we can think of generosity as being like an open hand, you know, it's open, giving away. And when, when we're generous, compared to being possessive where we're tired, when, when we're really in a, in a true spirit of generosity, um, there's a sense of expansion in our being, you know, and there's a sense of being connected to the other and being connected to something more, more than ourselves. So generosity, the, the cultivation of generosity, um, for very good reason, is one of the precepts, one of the parameters um, one, of, one of the things we're aspiring to to get to through Zen practice. And I'll go into this a little bit more detail later, but it's not, it's not really skillful in 
in talking about this precept as I've seen in other teachings on it, you know, to just say to people, well, you just should be more generous, you should give more and so on. And I think really because generosity is not something, it's not an act of true generosity, it's not an act of willpower, you know, it's not an an act of self-sacrificing willpower. True generosity is just spontaneous and free and natural and normal. But so what we need to do, I think, is more skillful. Instead of saying we should be more generous, we, we need to look at what blocks generosity. And like, like everything else in life that we've spoken about in the previous Dharma talks, what often behind it is fear. You know, there's a fear of letting go, there's a fear of being diminished in some way if I, if I don't hold on to my possessions, whatever they might be. So when we look at what generosity is, it's the act of giving freely that's of benefit to others. And there's, there's many different ways in which we can be generous. We can be generous with our friendship, with our love, um, with our material possessions. Um, we can be free. We can be generous with um, acts of service. We can be um, generous in giving constructive um, feedback, criticism to others. There's many different ways in which you can take a form. There's no one particular form. And what generosity is, it's the actual... um, It's the actual... uh, How should I say? It's the outcome of empathy. Like it's the action that follows from empathy. Sometimes people talk about empathy as being different from compassion. Empathy is like feeling what another person is feeling. So you might feel their pain or even their joy, whatever. But compassion is intended as, in its Buddhist sense, it's not just feeling empathy for someone. It's actually trying to do something that may relieve suffering. And so it's the behavioural act um, that comes out of that empathy, not just the feeling of something. It's not a feeling, just a feeling. But one of the ways of understanding generosity and building on what we talked about yesterday about the coincidence of opposites, you know, and how opposites come together, generosity is often spoken about in terms of, well, you just should be unconditionally generous. You know, you should give without expecting to receive back, which is fine. But it kind of gives us a misleading understanding of what the nature of existence is and what the nature of generosity is. Because when we look at the natural world, everything is being generous to everything else. Like the, the, the animals all breathe out carbon dioxide you know, unselfconsciously, but they're doing it, and the tr- and the plants absorb it, right? They're, they're the receivers of it, you know, and then the plants give off oxygen, and we're the receivers of the oxygen. So everything is in a in nature, is in what you could call a reciprocal relationship with everything else. Everything depends on everything else for its existence. Um. My, my previous teacher, Robert Aitken, wrote you, um, I, think you, I think most of you are familiar with his book, The Mind of Clover. 
And that's a lovely metaphor. It comes from the, 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 the story in the, in the introduction. The clover just, it just sort of dies and, you know, and it goes into the ground and it's full of, um, full of um, minerals and so on, which are good for other plants to thrive on. And so it doesn't go, oh, yeah, I'm going to be really generous and give all these minerals to everyone else so they can live. It just dies and it just naturally, naturally gives, you know, and is, and is lovely compost for other plants. So it, it's, he's referring to the mind of clover. The mind of clover is like that. It's not, it's not self-consciously generous. It's just giving forth, it's just being reciprocal with life. It's giving and it's receiving. And, and the giving can be done spontaneously and generously and wisely. Mm-hmm. There's some discernment in it as well. And the receiving is not the same as taking. You know, taking is kind of being possessive and, and grasping. But what receiving in it is just graciously receiving whatever comes as a gift. And if we have... If our life, if our relationships are one of giving generously and receiving graciously, then then it's mutually beneficial for everyone, just like it is in nature. And um, and in my work in in couple therapy, we use the same word. You know that we're trying to get couples to to grow into reciprocal relationships, so they're meeting each other's needs. Rather, one person's being met in one met in one area, but not in another. Another person's met in one, but another not in another. Um, in a reciprocal relationship, people are, are meeting each other's needs as much as they possibly can in a in a free a free spirit of generosity and 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 being re- receptive. But we can't this idea that we just should be giving and giving and giving and giving without there being any, any reciprocity. It's just unsustainable. And if you use an example like a, um, a mother with a young baby, okay, she wants to give nutritious food to her, to her baby. That's a, a natural act of motherly instinct and generosity. But if she doesn't eat good, nurt- good food herself, you know, she's just ignoring her own needs and she's just looking after the baby and not thinking about how she needs to be replenished. Well, she's not going to be very much good to the baby, after all. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the mother needs to be taken care of so she can take care of the baby and to self-care. So reciprocity is, is very much um, a part of this. Um, and further to it, um, there was a book that I read years and years and years ago. I think it was when I was in Hawaii, and it was called "The Gift Is Always Moving." So you can think it's not just a gift when you give a gift of something, whether it's kindness or whatever it might be, money. It goes there, and then it keeps on moving to someone else and someone else and someone else. And it's kind of when when natural giving occurs. It's kind of like a ball in a mountain stream. It just kind of spontaneously keeps bouncing down the river. But when we're stuck in possessiveness, 
it's instead of the instead of the energy just freely moving into one form or another spontaneously it's like to use a metaphor of a river we become like a stagnant pool you know we're just kind of when we're when we're possessing that's the way we've become the energy's not moving through us anymore it's not going in and it's not going out and when the energy's not being coming in and going out that's when everything becomes stagnant so the gift is always moving it's always freely moving around life is actually giving and receiving all the time and when we say that we want to be just like we want to be one with life as it is that's the nature of life giving and receiving all the time there are if you read some books on science and human nature um you would be forgiven for thinking that the real scientific view is that we're all self-centered you know we have a have a survival instinct and we have a selfish gene etc and um it is true that we're all interested in our own survival we we all ought to be interested in our own survival that's a healthy thing to do but it's very one dimensional to think that human beings are just basically selfish and interested in their own survival because if you look into the science of it you'll also find there's a lot of evidence that not only are we interested in our own survival is that we're we're genetically made up to have what what they would call in science pro-social behaviors we're interested in in our community you know in in caring for the environment around us and you don't have to look very far to find those those pro-social behaviors in other species like ants are very pro-social bees are very pro-social they they they're focused on the community you know it's not just about it's not about the individual it's about the community and um you know other other animals like us like monkeys and so on can be they they had they can you can show you can see from their behaviors that they can be generous parenting is an act of generosity mm-hmm. and um you know even in human beings we even go beyond being generous to our own species you know we all the wildlife protection societies would indicate that we can be generous beyond our own species to other species as well so it's it's not true even looking at the science to think that we're basically selfish yes we want to survive but alongside of that and that need for self care is that we are we're programmed to connect you know and we're connected into life organically and so we're part of that that process of the generosity unconscious generosity in um in buddhism um we have the deity of avalokiteshvara and uh she has many eyes many ears and she sees and hears all the suffering that goes on in the world but not only that not only is she an empath she's also got all these many hands you know and fingers 
and um, so she's got all these practical ways of helping people overcome suffering in the world. So Avalokiteshvara is a kind of a, um, a deity, a metaphor for generosity of spirit. You know, if you, a, a modern day Avalokiteshvara would have a spanner in one hand and a tea towel in the other, you know, and a box of tissues in the other, money in the other, whatever is needed. And whatever is needed, she comes forward with and she gives it. So, but it's important, particularly as a Zen student, that we don't, we don't worship these deities as though they're gods and goddesses, they're up there. Every one of you is Avalokiteshvara. We're all Avalok, we all have the nature of Avalokiteshvara. So it's not a matter of worshipping her as an ideal, it's finding the Avalokiteshvara within yourself uh, is really what Zen practice is about. Um, there are, in, in Zen, there are, um, and in Buddhism, there are words for generosity, like dana is a word for generosity, which is often giving alms to monks and so on, giving to the temple. And in Japan, um, in, in the Zen tradition, they have a, a, a ritual, um, a practice called takahatsu, and this is where the monks um, dress up in there with their bamboo hats and their robes and they walk around through the streets of the suburbs um, begging for arms. And um, I've seen them many times when I lived in um, Kyoto. It's, very, it's very, um, very touching to see them do it in some way. But they're spread out about 50 metres apart and they walk down the streets and they're, they're often very sturdy-looking masculine young men with their bamboo hats down like this, and they, they chant, Ho, Ho, and that means Dharma, and that's sort of a signal to all of the neighbourhood. You know, the monks are coming through, and if you can give something, that would be well-received. And so when you want to, when you want to give an offering... It could be money or it could be food or whatever. They've got a little a bib in front of them and you come in front of them and you both bow, but you're not supposed to make eye contact. Mm-hmm. And uh, you both bow to one another and then you put the offering in and then you bow again and they go on their way. And there's no talking, there's no eye contact because it's done in the spirit. There's no giver and there's no receiver. Mm-hmm. It's just the giving. And there's no, the giver is not superior and the receiver is not inferior. There's no high or low in the way. It's just the act of giving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the spirit in which um, we can give and receive in our, in our everyday lives. Nevertheless, while it's important to generate generosity, um, it's also important to look at what would be referred to in psychology as pathological giving, um, unwise giving. Um, and there are, there are three types that have been identified which are different to reciprocal giving. One is begrudging giving, begrudging generosity. Controlled 
generosity and unrelenting generosity. So begrudging generosity is when someone gives something half-heartedly and they're, and they're all, always expecting appreciation and applause and reminding you all the time about how they've given to you. After all I've done for you, <laughs> after all the self-sacrifice that I've done for you and you don't appreciate them. That's, that's begrudging giving, right? Um, and then, then you have control giving, which is giving with um, strings attached to it. You know, it's not unconditional. And a really good example of this is one of my um, clients um, whose mother is a very, very wealthy woman and, and she gives my clients these, these really wonderful gifts of, um, of money and luxury holidays, you know, and expensive gifts. But the strings attached to it is she has to be submissive. Mm-hmm. It has to be totally submissive. Yes, mum, no mum, yes, mum. Otherwise, it all stops. You know, so that's not true generosity either when it comes with that kind of conditioning. There is, true generosity, it, it does have this unconditional kind of quality to it. And then there's um, relentless giving. And relentless <coughs> giving is, is, is what's typical of um, what we would refer to in psych- psychology as codependency. You know, it's actually coming from a very strong sense of neediness, you know, the need, the need to be liked or to be seen to be generous or whatever. And it's often, it's unrelenting, it's like there's a pressure behind it all the time to give and give and give. And it's often inappropriate. And it's often not, not focusing on what the real needs of people are, but it's often coming from a place of... Um, rescue fantasies that other people are weak or vulnerable or can't cope and they, they have to be rescued by, by the, the, the person who's um, relentlessly giving all the time. Also, they, all, all, all for the reason so that they can feel needed themselves. Um, whereas where you would turn that around, you know, if you were seeing like someone like that in therapy, has helped them to get to see how needy they actually are, you know, how, how they can then deal with that and how, whether they allow other people to meet their needs or not. Right? There's a lot of work you could do around that. I'll give you an example of it from everyday life. I went, the last time I went to my hairdresser, she was telling me about um, incidents she has of um, young adolescents coming to have a haircut in her hairdressing salon with their helicopter parents around them and, um, and she told me of a, a boy who sat in the chair and um, his mother was hovering around him as though having a haircut was the most dangerous thing in the world <laughs> you know? and, um, and, and she had to, while he was in the chair, she had to distract him with the iPhone, like look at this while she's cutting your hair so you won't be anxious and, um, and my hairdresser um, who's a really lovely, she's a kind woman, but, but I can imagine being very firm. She said, I don't think that will be necessary to the mother, you know. 
Um, having a haircut's quite a safe experience. I've been doing it for 30 years. <laughs> Never had anyone have a problem with it yet, so would you please sit down and I'll, I'll cut your son's hair. Right. So that's an example of it. Do you know this kind of anxious neediness of hovering over others? Do you know as though they, as though they can't cope? You know, And... Um, it doesn't build resilience. It's not wise giving. So it's, it's very important, you know, um, to be... OK, there's unconditional giving, but there's something else... There's a, there's a wisdom element to it as well. And we also need to be discerning about um, when, when we give and when we don't give. Um, it's very important to consider. Also from um, my, my work in relationships and with working with couples, I'll often ask them at some point during the therapy, um, uh, what, are you, what are you most comfortable doing with your partner, giving or receiving? Now, one would assume that the answer would be self-interest, you know, well, I like receiving. Ne- nearly everyone without fail says I prefer giving than receiving. And um, the reason I understand it is that when when you're giving, you feel like you're doing something good, and but also you're kind of in a powerful position as the giver. You know, you're, you're being generous and kind and, and, and uh, you're not receiving anything. So giving, when you, if you're just stuck in being a giver all the time, um, it can be from a position of power because you don't want to feel vulnerable. Because to receive actually is, a, is an experience of, um, of being vulnerable in some way. You know, to be given something that you need, you know, and to show the gratitude is more of a softer kind of feeling. So um, sometimes in relationships, um, people feel like, well, I'm the one that gives and gives all the time. But they're not. But yes, their partner could be more generous. But sometimes it's because the generous one is not good at receiving. You know, they feel weak. They kind of feel indebted. You know, so they. So it's important that we're we're gracious and we're able to receive as well as to give. It's again, it's reciprocal. We need to be able to do both. But all of this begs the question: what? What blocks us from being generous? It's a natural, spontaneous energy within us. How come we get blocked and we, and, and, and we, we become possessive and don't give freely? Like I was saying in the beginning, I think a lot of it is based on fear. And for example, um, we may have had, had experiences in our past where we were generous in some kind of way and we felt like we were manipulated or used in some way. So we're, we're fearful of that happening again. We may be fearful of being either taken for granted or ignored or humiliated, whatever it might be, when we're offering something. So we're, we're holding back and we're cautious about doing it. Um, we may think that other people are, are just manipulating us to serve their own self-interest, so we hold back. Or we may have a paradigm of scarcity rather than abundance, thinking we don't, we don't have much money to give away or much time to give away and we have to store it for the future. 
you know, and it's important for us to be as objective as we can in our life. Like, have I really got a scarcity of time or energy or money or whatever? Or objectively, could I really give rather than being caught in that, that scarcity paradigm? It's also important to look at, when we look at the precept, often we find that there's some areas in our life where we give very freely and there's other other areas where we're restricted. And to look at an example from my, my work again, as an example, um, there was a, a woman I've been seeing in counselling, a young woman who uh, has a boyfriend and and one of the things she's not happy about in the relationship is that her she would like her boyfriend to me to be more affectionate with her. He's not very generous with affection, but he's very very generous on acts of service. Ask him to fix the light bulb or fix a car or take her down the shops, do you know, or do anything practical for her. He's right there, you know, but she'd prefer a bit more affection rather than the acts of acts of service. And um, when we explored it, you know, looking at the family that he grew up in, he grew up in a family where um, uh, it was expected that everyone sacrificed their individual needs for the sake of the family, a very strong sense of obligation and a very strong sense of guilt if you didn't. And they didn't show any affection. They don't show any affection to one another. So that's where he's come from. And when my client says to him, well, I'd like you to be more affectionate, instead of being affectionate, he withdraws. You know, withdraws more and more, becomes less affectionate, and then comes around doing acts of service, you know, because <laughs> that's what he's used to, you know, to save the relationship. He says, please, I'd like more affection, you know. Um, but what happens when we grow up in families where there's been conditional... Um, control giving, you know, and begrudging giving, you know, and it's, it's not a healthy kind of sense of giving and it's based on guilt, then what happens is that people then get caught in a, a conflict. They feel, they feel kind of guilty about not giving and resentful that they should and it keeps them kind of stuck there, you know. So it's not, it's not useful to... To ever say to someone, do you know, well, you should just give more, um, because sometimes it just puts them in a bind. It's like saying, saying, well, you should love more, you should be more spontaneous. There's a double bind in it that sort of blocks people. Um, usually, we, we, it's certainly important to ask for what we need, like more affection. But if it's done in a demanding way, um, then it's not effective. It's often important to state our needs, but not in a demanding way. And on the other hand, like the boyfriend, if you come from a family which has very conditional giving, well, there's no point blaming your family all the time for the way you are in your relationship, because if you keep on doing that, um, people may leave you because you're not generous, or you have an emotionally impoverished life because you're not generous. So reciprocal generosity and receiving in relationships and also more broadly in our life is, is the natural way to be. And our, our practice is to, 
to find our, our natural desire to give.